I'm going to speak to you as an investor. That's what I spend most of my time doing. Uh, I'm a capitalist. I, I'm not on Wall Street, but I work with people on Wall Street. And that's what I've done uh, most, of, most of my, since I got out of school. Uh, the story I want to tell you is about God knocking on my door with an opportunity. Now, you know, in, in terms of what I spend most of my time doing, it's, sometimes it's a little bit confusing. I brought my daughter in to uh, sort of be my apprentice uh, when she was 15 because I just thought it would be a good way for she and I to spend time together. So three days a week during the summer, she would hang out with me. And, I'd, you know, this is what we do. And I'd force her to read the newspaper and then... If there were meetings I was going to, she'd go to the meetings with me, and she'd see me do emails and you know, talk to people on the phone. And she's watching all this. And, and on the second day, sort of toward the middle of the afternoon, she looked at me and she said, Daddy, when do we make the money? Yeah, she, she's, she's watching this activity. And it's like, you know, it used to be in, with Charlie Brown when Lucy would ask Charlie a question at the beginning of the comment strip, and you see him still sitting there tying his shoes at the end because he's still pondering that question. And that question got me thinking, what is it, what is it we do that, that, that makes the money? I mean, hopefully, as a capitalist, we make good decisions. You know, and, and in order to make good decisions, you've got to see things clearly. And that's what we, that's what we try to do in our business. Uh, I was raised to be in this environment. When I was a kid, um, I come from uh, my father's side of the family is Lebanese. And they're kind of known for being entrepreneurs. And so we really didn't go hunting and fishing a lot when I was a kid. When I was a kid, my brother and I would go with my dad and we'd go look at apartment buildings and, and real estate. And he taught us about depreciation and then he'd collect rent from these little duplexes and we'd count it around the kitchen table. And, you know, I, I say that because I was sort of raised to learn how to make money, uh, to, to, um, to what Margaret was saying earlier today. You know, I was raised to gather manna. And so, uh, so that's what I've spent a lot of time doing. So I was chasing this car of financial success, and I was chasing it like a dog chases a car. And then, you know, if the dog ch catches the car, what's he going to do with it? And so in 1995, my brother and I, we'd started this business. It was an idea I had when I was in college. We started, we sold it to a New York buyout firm. And then it's sort of like, well, now what? I mean, I was 33 years old. Now, well, what, do you, what do you do with your life now? You think that, I mean, that's, this is what you've been trained to, and boom, you're here. Um, but, you know, I'm also a truth seeker, and I started asking, what, what, what should I do with this? Not many people have been that deliberate in thinking how we ought to behave. I'm th what am I supposed to do with my gifts, and in particular, the money that was all of a sudden here? And by the way, I know we all don't sell a business and have a pot there, but we... We all have some that we don't absolutely need. And even that which we need, how ought we to behave with it? You know, Albert Einstein once said that sometimes the questions we ask are more important than the answers. And so I, I asked this question of myself. A lot of folks want to do the right thing with our gifts and our material resources. But you know, at some point, you start thinking about it and your head starts hurting so bad, you just kind of say, forget it. And you, you do it in a, half, a halfway manner. Or at least that's the way I sometimes do. But you know, I want, I want us to think about just a couple of questions here. These were the questions I was asking myself. I was thinking, you know, do, do any of us own slaves? I mean, I don't own slaves, thankfully. Do any of us own our children? Do we own our spouse? Of course not. We don't own those things. But how many of us act as if we own our own lives? As if they're chattel? you know, to do with as we please. I mean, the world, the world told me when I saw my business, people said, well, go do whatever you want. 
And, and I sense, well, I don't know. I, I just, I mean, that's what the world tells me, but I'm not sure that's how I'm supposed to, to live for the rest of my life. You know, we live in an age when the intellectual leaders in our media, in our society, they're in a kind of a metaphysical mess because they bought into materialism. And materialism says that all that matters is matter, is material. Now that viewpoint's been around for probably forever, but in the last, uh, in the last couple of decades, it's really gained a lot of currency. It's sort of like if we can't measure it, touch it and feel it, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. And that throws out the transcendent and we focus on the material. But in our world today, I think matter matters less and less. I've had the good fortune to spend time and meet with CEOs of major companies, titans of Wall Street, great athletes, political leaders at every level, and, and great religious leaders. You know, and I've spent a lot of time with just ordinary folks like me and my neighbors. And there's something true for every one of those people. As I started to study this, I realized there's something true for every one of those and for every one of us. And that is that those who say, because I'm looking, how, how to live? Those who say yes to God are happy, and those who say no to God are unhappy. And what was fascinating in all these strata of society, no matter what level of money, fame, power, or influence, it didn't seem to influence their happiness one iota. So I'd been chasing the manna and gathering it. And then I realized, you know what? I look at these people who have the manna, and I don't know if that's what guides their happiness. I think one of the most profound things that I came across was said by St. Augustine when he said our hearts are restless because they're made for God, and they'll be restless until they rest in God. So when I graduated from college, I thought that moving forward in life was like climbing a mountain. You know, you aim for the top of the mountain, you, you, you plan, you, you strategize, you get the best route, you know there'll be problems, but you're prepared for them, and you set out climbing the mountain. I don't really see life like that anymore. My experience has shown me otherwise. My experience has shown me that life is less like climbing a mountain and more like riding a wave. And I don't mean this in some kind of funky new age uh, uh, fashion. I mean it in a really Christian way. When you're out on the ocean riding a raft on a wave, we don't surf on the East Coast, we just ride rafts. Um, you know, when you're riding that wave, there's no question really where the power of the wave comes from. I and mean, we know where the real, you, you may paddle out in the ocean, but we, we know we're not the one propelling ourselves. It's the power, it's the mighty force of the ocean. But interestingly enough, our effort and our cooperation is required if we're going to have a good ride on the wave. I mean, the wave won't just do it by itself or we go tumble end over end or we're re resisting it or whatever. There does take some cooperation, and the more we practice riding the wave, the better we get at it. The more you become almost one with the wave. Your will is still subordinated to the direction and the force of the wave, but we're not just along for the ride. We get to kind of participate in the thing. That's what I started to seek to do, because I realized this climbing the mountain stuff, I'm not sure that that's what gets me there. I'm not sure that's like riding the wave and being one with the wave. I like to meditate on the adventures of St. Joseph. You know, think of the plans he had. He met this nice young woman. He's going to marry her and settle down and tend to his carpentry trade and lead a calm, sedate life. And then an angel appears to him and tells him the girl's pregnant, but he should marry her anyway. And then the child's born in horrible circumstances. And then the angel comes to him and tells him he's got to hightail it to Egypt. And he goes to Egypt, and the, Egypt, the angel tells him to come back from Egypt to Nazareth. 
In the meantime, this son of his is confounding all the people in the temple. You know, I think of Joseph and how he's just being bandied about this way and that way. When I was young, I didn't realize how much of my life was going to end up being sort of like Joseph's. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm OCD and type A and all those other obsessive things that go with people who like to plan their lives and have it all in order. But you know, we have things in our lives that just turn them upside down. They just throw us for a loop. I'm a huge control freak, but I started realizing God's going to call us to things we never imagined. And the only really important question for any of us for the rest of our lives, and for me, is whether we're going to listen and follow that call. St. Joseph rode the waves that God put in his path. And that's what we have to do with openness and generosity. 23 years ago, about six days ago, 23 years ago, my wife and I lost a little baby to miscarriage. We never knew the little baby. But if I could point to one event in my life that was most effective in drawing me closer to God, it was the loss of that little baby. Because up to then, you know, I, I plan my life, and if you work hard and you work your plan, things happen. And, you know, I, I realized at that point, there's, there's not a single life that God creates that's dispensable. Or stated another way, every life is indispensable. Every life makes a difference in God's world in some way. I realized this little baby that was never born had about as much impact on me as any human being I'd ever met. One of my favorite sayings in business used to be that graveyards are full of indispensable people. You know what that means? You're in a business and, okay, somebody leaves, fine, fine. Everybody, you know, nobody's indispensable. But I started to change my point of view on that. What's really great to see for me is someone who's decided to ride these waves that God puts in his life. That's what I'm trying to do now. I fail at it every day, but I'm realizing if, we, if I can embrace and rejoice in the uncertainty and drama of the event of life, then the only thing that really matters is whether I say yes or no to God. That's the whole and complete measure of my success in the world. And yet I got society telling me something different. We all do, every day, something different. But because God has blessed me with money, the use of that money is one of the ways I've learned I can say yes. You know, in the book of Revelation, God says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me, let him open the door and I will come in to eat with him and he with me. And a few years ago, he knocked on my door with something that will affect my life forever. A couple years ago, I was in the Holy Land. I'm sure many of you have been there. You know, you're in the Holy Land. You go to Golgotha. You go to Calvary. You see the tomb. You go to Bethlehem. You see all these places. They're real. And it reminded me, because right after going to the Holy Land, we took my daughter up the East Coast to do our combination American history and college tour, you know, up the East Coast. So we go to Jamestown and Williamsburg and Philadelphia and Boston and all these historic places. You go there to Independence Hall, you see the Liberty Bell, you go to Independence Hall and you realize this Declaration of Independence, it wasn't just a nice legend. You know, Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox in Minnesota, that's a legend, okay? We get that. Independence Hall, that happened. And yet I think sometimes it's, it's just so easy because it was so long ago to think that all this Christian stuff you know, it's, it's, it's a nice story, it's a nice legend, but ought, ought it to control your life? I don't know. I mean, do, do we know whether it really happened? You go to the Holy Land, you start to see these places. It's like going to Independence Hall. You say, this stuff, this stuff really happened. You know, Christianity is not a feeling. It's a belief that God became man. If Jesus didn't exist, 
if that person didn't exist and do what we think he did, the whole thing kind of crumbles. It just becomes another philosophy. And that's why so many are dedicated to disproving what he did. Now, this, th there's, there's a place where this is going, this, this idea of did it really happen. There have been a variety of scholars and non-scholars over the years who have sought to diminish the impact or the interpretation or the content of the words spoken by Jesus Christ. Many have used as a point of origin to criticize Christianity an effort to discredit the historical accuracy of Holy Scripture. I mean, that's what Dan Brown's into with the Da Vinci Code and you know, all these legends about what happened. Because you see, the Codex Vaticanus, which is the oldest Bible in the world, it dates to about the year 325 AD. And so there's been a fair amount of argument that such a text can't be trusted. You know, as there are too many followers of Christ who are interested in manipulating his legend and editing and amending the text prior to 325 AD. And therefore, that's the oldest Bible we got. How much can we really trust it? But in the 1950s, some ancient leaves of papyrus were found in Egypt, in the desert, in a cave. And they significantly strengthened the claim that Christians have to the authenticity of Holy Scripture. Now we all know John was Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, and the first time I heard anything about these papyrus from Egypt were from a Jewish man who now lives in New York on Long Island named Harry Epstein. 30 years ago, Harry lived in Atlanta and did real estate deals with my father. And then about 20 years ago, he moved back to New York. So one day in May 2006, I spoke to Harry. Harry calls me on the phone. He says, you know, he was approached by some folks. Now this is Harry Epstein. I'm thinking, what does he have to do with the Christian Bible? He says he was approached by some folks who were looking for funds to buy the oldest copy of the Lord's Prayer and give it to the, to the church. Was I interested? I thought to myself, well, I, I don't... I don't know. I, don't, I barely know what papyrus is. I think it has to do with paper. I think that's where we get the word paper from, but I don't really know what papyrus is. I don't know how this fits into anything I do. But fine, send me the information, Harry. So Harry sends me this package with a book from Christie's, Christie's Auction House. And it was a glossy brochure, really fancy book they put together. And it should have been because I look at the price they're asking for this thing. And it was more money than I'd ever spent on anything in my life. And so, you know, I talked to Harry on the phone and I said, you know, I mean, I'm engaged in some charitable endeavors, but I just don't see where this fits in with me. And, and I don't really think that this is something I'm called to do. And Harry said, well, let me, let me let you talk to a priest who's been traveling around the country raising money for it. Uh, you don't have to come up with all the money. We're, we're seeking contributions from everybody. Everyone, you may, may just want to participate. And then I'm reading the, a letter that's in there that's quoting the Pope as saying that, you know, it's urgent that we get this papyrus for safeguarding in the Christian community. So I told him, you know, I understand the magnitude of this thing, but it's, it's really not my thing. I, I'm, I'm engaged in education and schools and, and y'all going around the globe looking for people who can, who can do this. I'm sure there's all sorts of folks who are interested in antiquities and, and archeology span and all this. I just don't know that this is my thing, but I'll, I'll pray about it and consider it and get back to you. I actually kind of felt cornered, and I'm sure many of you know that exact same feeling. You know, you, you, people are very well-meaning, but you feel like I'm getting backed up into something. And it's like she was talking about this morning with the sweater and the gloves. And, you know, I just, I don't want to do this. We were talking about a, a fair amount of money, an amount that was going to make me uncomfortable. And I try to make a, a good faith effort and pray about things like this. You know, is God really calling me to it? I was intrigued, but that wasn't enough. But then I prayed, and I, you know, I concluded... 
I believe there's one God in the universe, and I think he came to earth one time, and I think he gave us one prayer to pray. And this is the oldest copy of that prayer in the world. I thought, man, if you don't do this, you're not going to be able to live with yourself the rest of your life. And so I said, by the way, how much more money have y'all raised from going around? And of the total that they had to raise, they raised 1%. I said, I thought I was going to be part of this, but I guess no one else is stepping up to the plate, you know? And I mentioned about my, my, my little, the little baby being indispensable. One of the things I try to do with my charitable things is say, is there someone else can do this? Because if someone else can do it, then fine. Don't steal God's opportunity from them. But I'll look, nobody's doing this. Nobody's stepping up the plate. I said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. Now, one of the other things I did when I was in Jerusalem, I mentioned on that trip to the Holy Land, I visited a guy named Cardinal Martini. He's a cardinal in the Catholic Church. He used to be the Archbishop of Milan. And actually, if, if Pope Benedict had not been named as Pope, a lot of the rumors said this guy would have gotten it. So anyway, he didn't. He retired to Jerusalem because uh, he's a biblical scholar. And I found out that several years ago when he was getting his doctoral thesis, he wrote his doctoral thesis on a comparison of this papyrus and the Codex Vaticanus, the oldest Bible we have. He went through every marking of the papyrus, comparing it to the Codex Vaticanus. You see, not only does the papyrus contain the oldest copy of the Lord's Prayer in the world, it's also the oldest copy of the combined Gospels of Luke and John in existence. In fact, what was kind of cool the other day, right after the Masters, I didn't know this was going to be on, 60 Minutes ran a profile about the Vatican Library, and they showed this papyrus. Um, so this papyrus predates the Codex Vaticanus. So we've got the oldest Bible in the world on this papyrus. It predates it by 150 years. If the theory that Scripture continually was revised and edited, the way those who try to discredit Christianity, if it's true that it was continually edited and revised and manipulated and massaged and all that kind of stuff, you know, up until our oldest Bible, well, then you'd expect some pretty significant differences between our Bible and this papyrus we found in the 50s. But guess what? There are big differences. In fact, there's almost complete agreement between those two documents that gives us a really compelling case that the early church fathers were not continually editing and changing what happened. In fact, they were remaining remarkably faithful to it, ensuring a level of accuracy that would only be accorded to that which you believe to be the Word of God. This papyrus helped to confirm the Word of God upon which Christianity has been premised for 2,000 years. And that's why the Pope was so interested in it. That's what Cardinal Martini found, almost complete agreement with these two things. We actually got to see the papyrus in the vault of the Vatican down below. This is the stuff Dan Brown writes about. He's never been there, but he writes about it. Um, and so, you know, you go in and we go through doors and locks and alarms and, you know, there's one caged area and then you go another place and then another vault. And we go in there. It's late at night on a Saturday night. And we go in and, and the guy that's in charge of the library, he's pulling out stuff. He's pulling out an original copy of Virgil's Aeneid. And I say, can we see the Codex Vaticanus, oldest Bible in the world? He says, sure. He pulls out a sheet of it, big and beautiful text. And then he says, you know, are you ready to see the papyrus? And we say, absolutely. So he brings it out. And the next moment will kind of live in our family history forever. This is sort of the Indiana Jones moment, you know, because here's this ancient thing. And he brings it out. And like any paper that's been aged, right, it's sort of an amber color. So he brings out, and it's about, about this wide and about this tall, each sheet. He brings out this sheet, and they're all in glass, like a microscopic slide. So he brings it out, and he holds it up 
for us to see. It's the first time we've seen the papyrus because they brought it from Switzerland under armed guard. They shut down the airport in Switzerland, put it on the plane, took it to Rome, shut down the runway in Rome, surrounded it with cars and a helicopter, brought it in the Vatican, put it in the vault. So now he's bringing out this first time we've seen it, holds it up to the light. And I'm not kidding you, it wasn't a miracle, but it's, it's wonderful how we have these transcendent moments. He holds it up to the light and the thing just is like it's on fire. The light hits the amber and it comes through it and it turns it golden. And he holds it up and a priest behind us says, there it is, the word of God. I thought, oh my goodness, there it is, the word of God, the oldest copy of it that we have. It's the same reaction I saw on the face of the Pope two days later when we presented it to him. You know, we had this nice presentation, nice ceremony, and then they bring the papyrus out to him. He's like a kid on Christmas morning. I mean, at the time, he's 80 years old. He says, where are my glasses? He gets his glasses out, puts his glasses on. He starts reading it. Now, it's in ancient Greek. It's a form of Greek called Koine Greek. I can't read Koine Greek. I can't read regular Greek. But the Pope can. So he starts reading it. I didn't know which leaves. There are 53 leaves. I didn't know which leaf he would bring out or they would bring out and present to him. But he starts reading from a leaf. And I nudge my daughter. She and my wife and I stand there. I nudge my daughter. I said, baby, you know what he's reading? You know what part he's reading from? She said, yeah, Daddy, I think I do. You see, when my daughter, one of the things I did with her when she was a little girl, I took her to school. That was one, you know, everybody divides up their duties. I took my daughter to school. And we'd talk. And each morning we'd say this, uh, a, a prayer to each other. And then she got a little older, a very simple prayer. She got a little older, we learned the 23rd Psalm. I'd say one line, she'd say the other line. We'd go back and forth. She got a little older, we learned the 27th Psalm. That's a lot harder. Okay, this was testing my memory at this point, but we learned 27th Psalm, we go back and forth. She got a little older, eighth or ninth grade. I said, let's try something different. Let's learn the prologue to the Gospel of John. And so we did. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And we learned that. We'd say that back and forth to one another. Here we are, watching the guy who's the successor to Peter, okay, in charge of, you know, responsible for more than a billion Christians around the world. Uh, and he's reading the oldest copy of exactly what we've been reciting to each other for the last four years on our way to school, every morning, and that's what he's reading. Later that day, we had a little reception with the Secretary of State from back in the day, and I asked her to stand up. She didn't know this was coming, but I knew she knew it. I said, baby, stand up. She stood up. I said, in the beginning was the Word, and she said, and the Word was with God. And we went back and forth, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a testimony to bear witness to the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light, so that all might believe through him. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was born into the world, but his own people did not receive him. The prologue to the Gospel of John. We heard earlier about the poetry of it. I don't think money's what makes the world go round, but I do think money can be used as a wonderfully effective tool to fulfill our destinies and to listen to the opportunity when God knocks, especially when we invest in that which is transcendent. And as somebody who invests every day, that's what I want to be thinking about. The transcendent things are hard to address in our market, but they're the most important things. In our society today, we have a much greater poverty of, material, of, of virtue and transcendence than we do of material goods. Virtue and transcendence is that which gives greatest fulfillment of our humanity. I realize none of us earned our birth or our parents or our intellect or our sensitivities 
or our talents or our spouses or our children or the air we breathe or the harmony we hear or the sunsets we see. They're all gifts. I've worked really hard all my life, but all the best things in my life are gifts. I've realized that if the economy of the world is one of the gift, then the only method I can be fully human, fully what I'm intended to be, is being consistent with that order within the universe. In other words, you know, it's the giving of, of myself and the truth to others that allows me and all of us to become what we're designed and supposed to become and fulfill that yearning that's in all of us. That's why we have money and the gifts we have. That's what we're supposed to do with our gifts. We're supposed to use them to draw forth that which is transcendent, that which makes us more fully human. From time immemorial, since Adam and Eve, men and women have been trying to figure out how to be gods. Well, we can't be gods, but we can be like God. We can give like God. Margaret talked about a cheerful giver. That's why God loves a cheerful giver. We can be like him when we're generous. When I was a little boy, and my father was taking us around and those, those Saturday morning things, as I told you. He used to say to me, and my father speaks a very earthy manner. He says, you know what? Opportunity knocks on everybody's door. Most people are just too stupid to hear it. And God puts it a different way that I quoted at the beginning, you know? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me, let him open the door. Let him answer and open the door and I'll come in and eat with him and him with me. Let's all continue to pray. Pray for me, I'll pray for you that when he knocks, we'll hear it and open the door. We really don't know how it will change our life. This, this, this connection we now have with this piece of the authenticity of our Christian faith is something that will affect my family forever. And it was something I just wanted to close the door on. And I have to remember, my father said, don't be too stupid, Frank, to hear that opportunity when it's knocking. Because if you're not listening, you're not going to hear it. As a businessman, for me as a businessman and investor to you all, let's all pray that we all continue to listen as God knocks at that door so we can open the door and have him eat with us and us with him. Thanks for having me today.